right, normally I would launch into my sermon, uh, but it was very strange. I, I started to hear the, the, the chants, if you will, very low in, in the back of my mind, and went louder and louder, Jimmy Rock, Jimmy Rock. It, it was like Rudy or something like that, you know? Uh, every probably uh, seven to ten times after I preach for a while, I just get a little bit run down, honestly, and I've got to call in the reliever. So uh, Jimmy is one of our church planters. He's planting a PCA church in the Red Mill area and got some exciting things going on there. But he has agreed to come and share the word with us today. So Jimmy, come on up. The pulpit is yours. Thank you, Carlos. I always, I'm always a little hesitant when, when Carlos is here because then I can't, I can't match his introduction of me. Um, <laughs> at least when he's not here, I get to stand on my own. But, um, but yes, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jimmy Brock. Um, I'm pastor in a, of, a, of a church that does not yet meet on Sundays. Uh, but we are building up a new church community down in the Princess Anne Red Mill area. Um, for those of you who have been here and heard me before, you know that we had uh, some exciting things planned for the summer. Uh, past couple times I was here talking about our summer camp. Uh, that happened. We had a great summer camp called Summer's Best Week. Lots of people came to it. Uh, kids had a great time. We had great counselors from another of our churches out in Chesapeake. Their, their youth came and served as counselors. Um, and so uh, that was great. So I thank you for your prayers. Uh, some of you who publicized that on Facebook and those kinds of things, I appreciate that. Uh, we're continuing on uh, with our neighborhood Bible studies and community events, trying to gather people together. Kind of like Carlos was saying about community groups, trying to gather together people into authentic community where they can know and be known um, and experience the freedom that comes only from God, but then experience that in relationship with other people. So if you uh, if you know anybody down in the Red Mill, Princess Anne area, you can down in Pungo in there, if you might be interested in connecting with the community, might be interested in exploring the Bible for themselves. Our neighborhood Bible studies are designed to be open to anybody, whatever their faith or level of Bible background or knowledge. So we would welcome any connections you might have, and we always appreciate your prayers. Um, but for now, uh, let's turn to God's Word. First uh, John chapter 5, starting at verse 13, it's printed there in your bulletin, or you can turn to it in a Bible. Um, and I, I have to tell you that, that many of you have missed most of the series on First John, but that's mostly because I've been preaching it at other churches, and only, only come here with it occasionally. But as I've, as I've gone around and preached to different churches, uh, I've been going all the way through 1 John. And for those of you who have been here, have heard uh, some snippets of that uh, throughout 1 John. I believe I started that series here back in April. And so, now in, in 1 John, let me fill you in on the parts that you've missed. There's been a lot of repetition. John has a couple of key themes, and he hits them over and over again. His major, the major problem in 1 John is that the community to which John is writing, a number of people have left. And that has been a theme throughout the letter. How can the remainder of the community deal with the fact that a large group of people seem to have left the community and now are teaching and practicing contrary to the teaching of John and the apostles? And they're saying that there's something else out there. They're telling the people, the believers, the church that John is writing to, the churches in Asia, they're telling them that there's more to it. There's knowledge that you've got to have. It's, there, there's more to it. There's special knowledge. And, and this whole living righteously thing, eh, maybe not so important. It's all about this higher 
level of knowledge. And over and over, John has affirmed that his teaching comes from God, comes from Jesus himself, that Jesus came in the flesh. That's probably the single most significant theme of 1 John, is that Jesus himself came from God, as God, and came to earth, and that we can trust in that. And then, along with that, he's talked about our status as children of God as a result of that, and the importance of turning away from sin and loving one another. So here in 1 John uh, chapter 5, 13 through 21, the last part of this letter, John wraps them all up. He wraps up these things by reminding them of all the things that they can have confidence in because Jesus has come and warning them about turning away from those things. So let's read now. 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you would sink these words uh, written down so long ago deep into our hearts that they may not just be information, but that they may transform us, transform our hearts and our minds and the way that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you worship? Now, if you're a Christian, if you, if you claim the name of Christ, as, as John says here at the beginning, those who believe in the name of the Son of, of, the Son of God, you would probably answer very quickly, I worship, I worship God. And maybe just, I worship God alone. And that's certainly what I would say, and certainly what I would want to say, and hope that all of you would say. But then as I think about it, for myself, and as I, and this may be true for some of you as well, if I start to ask some different questions, then sometimes the answer starts to change. That when I say not just, what do you worship as an abstract question, but what do I do, where do I turn when I'm sad? Where do I turn when I need help, when I need security, when I need to feel better? What do I care most about? What makes me the most happy? What makes me the most unhappy? And sometimes I think, no, I'm really most happy when the Redskins win. <laughs> and I'm really most unhappy when they lose. And, and really when I'm sad and I need comfort, Sometimes I would I turn first to food 
rather than to prayer. Sometimes when I need help, when I need to figure something out, I turn first to friends and the wisdom of others instead of turning first to God in prayer. Or I turn to books, or I turn inside to my own figuring things out and my own problem-solving ability. And like, uh, like Ken was saying earlier in our confession, all of those things are, are good things, actually. The Redskins are a good thing. The friends are good. Food is good. Books are good. All these things are good, and there's nothing wrong with turning to them and seeking advice and enjoying the pleasures and the good things that God gives us. But when those become the ultimate thing, when those become the place where we find hope and security, when those become the place where we do our acts of devotion and we turn to those things regularly, habitually, and nothing can stop it, then they can become idols. And that's what we find here in what, what seems like a, a somewhat of a shocking, uh, or not maybe not shocking, it's kind of weird conclusion to the letter of 1 John. He's been high and soaring. You know that the Son of God has come and has given us things, and then little children keep themselves from idols. In fact, John has not really talked about idols. It just came in here at the end, and we're left wondering why. In this, in this passage, there's really there's two commands in this set of verses. The first one came back in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. That was the first command. And the second one is right there at the end of verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, why? Where, how does that fit in? That's really the question that we're left with as we read through it. And I think the reason that John is saying this is because idols are things that tempt us away from the sure knowledge of God. And there's a contrast here. The other thing that stands out in these verses is six or seven times John says, we know. He tells us all the things that we know. We know this, we know that, we know this. And we can read those and we can think, well, yeah, we know this. I know that the Son of God has come. I know that we have eternal life. But where John challenges us at the end of his letter is do we know it in our heads or do we know it in our hearts? Do we really know it? Is this the kind of knowledge that drives our lives? And idols are the things that suck us away from that heart knowledge. They turn our hearts because they're real and they're tangible. God can seem far off sometimes and the knowledge can seem theoretical and abstract. But the idols, back then in the, in the first century when John wrote that the idols were very tangible. They were statues and there were temples and you could go and perform rituals and it all was right in front of you and everybody was with you and everybody was happy. And then there was the knowledge of God that seemed hard and abstract. And now today we don't, we don't tend to be tempted towards the idols in front of us, the, the statues, but we still have idols just as much because they're tangible. The food is tangible. The other, the friends are tangible. The shopping mall is tangible, and it's something we can see in front of us, and our hearts are drawn towards it. So when we say, what, what do you worship? Sometimes we find ourselves in this situation where we're, we're speaking that we worship God and that we know these things, but we're actually walking this way towards the things that are more tangible. And what happens when we walk while we're, we're talking one way and looking another way, we, 
we fall over. It doesn't, it doesn't work very well. And so here John is calling his listeners and calling us today. He's saying, turn back. Turn your hearts towards God because of what you know. He's saying we know that God holds his own for eternal life. God is holding on to you. Turn your heart back towards him. And he really lays out three categories of God holding on his own, three assurances that he gives us. He first tells us in the first couple of verses that Jesus hears his own. He hears our prayers. We can be sure that he's holding us because he hears us. And then he tells us that Jesus protects his own, protects us from sin. And then he tells us that Jesus came for his own. So let's walk through those three, those three assurances. Uh, in verses 13 through 15, he tells us that Jesus hears his own. He says this is confidence. Verse 14 is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And we read this and we're like, really? He hears every he hears us. Okay, he hears us. Alright, we can buy that maybe that God hears us. But we have the request. Do we really? And then we then we come back to what we ask according to his will. And we start wrestling with that. Okay, what does that mean according to his will? Well, how can I really know what's God God's will? What does God want? And so as we try to understand this and we think about the teaching of the rest of the Bible and put it all together, we think about this. This is not some call to figure out the secret things of God or some call that we must figure out what God is planning for the future and then we'll just ask for that. That's, that's, that's far beyond us. We do not have the ability to figure out the secret things of God, what is going to happen in the future. But we do know his will for us in terms of how we are to live. We know some things about his will. We know that it is will, his will for us to love one another. We know that it is his will for us to worship him, to care for one another, to serve other people, to share the good news of the gospel with other people. This is God's will. And so when we ask according to his will, then we know that he is doing those things. And we know that we have the request that we ask of him. We don't know that we have it right now. We don't know his timing. That's part of the secret thing. But we know that God is at work. We can have confidence in that. And it's not so much about, like I said, it's not about trying to figure out the secret things, trying to figure out what's going to happen, trying to figure out somebody who is incomprehensible and beyond figuring. But it's more like a child learning to ask of their parents. Maybe if you are a child or if you remember being a child, we were all children once. You remember as you, as you grew up, you probably got told no a lot. If you are a child, you may still be getting told no a lot. And sometimes it may seem mysterious, especially when you're young. But the older you get, the more you realize that there are some things that you can ask for that you're going to get yes. And there are some things that you ask for that you're going to get no. And eventually you give up asking for the things that are no. And you focus on asking for the things that are yes. Because you start to understand the will of your parents. The will of your parents is your parents want you to do what is right. They want you to do what is healthy. 
So when you ask for green beans, the answer will be yes. Of course you can have more green beans. More salad, yes. More ice cream, no. That is not the will of your parents, at least not too much of it, maybe a little bit. Can we, can we talk, Ma? Yes, of course we can talk. Can I stay out until midnight? No, no, these are not things. But what we learn as we grow up, we learn the will of our parents. And as we grow in our faith, as we grow toward God, we learn the will of God. And we learn what it means to ask according to his will, to ask him for the power to love, the power to forgive, the power to live rightly, to turn away from sin and choose righteousness, the power to serve. We learn to ask him for these things, and we start to see him answer us. So how does this work out practically in our lives? If we're tempted away by idols, tempted by habits of worshiping other things, of turning to other things, how can we turn our hearts by habit back toward God? And really, this asking and knowing that we have what we ask and knowing that God hears us comes from cultivating a prayer relationship with God. Again, it's not about asking with just the right words or figuring it all out, but cultivating a relationship, just like a child with their parents. That we come to God and we have to go through a lot of no. That's how children learn. And every parent would rather what parent wants their child to never ask questions, to just be wrapped up in themselves, trying to figure it out perfectly before they ask? No, I want my children to come to me and ask. Ask for ice cream. Sure, you can ask for ice cream. I'm going to tell you no. You can ask to stay out late. I'm going to tell you no, but I know that's how you learn. That's how children learn, and that's how we learn with God. And so we can have the freedom to come to God and ask him for whatever he wants, whatever we want. Whatever we think best, without fear, and knowing that God, our Father, will shape our hearts and our understanding as we engage in that relationship with him, as we ask freely and then freely accept that sometimes we are not asking according to his will. Even though we thought it was his will, even though we thought it was what was right, and he, he teaches us and he shapes us. And we can turn to the scriptures as we engage in this prayer relationship and learn what are the things that God wants for us. And we can pray the words of the Psalms. We can pray the prayers from the Apostle Paul in his letters, his prayers for the churches. We can take those and pray them for ourselves, that we would know the riches of Christ's love for us, the extent of his love, that we will be able to live rightly in this world. We can pray these things and cultivate a relationship with God because we know that Jesus hears his own. And we can say that, but we also need to turn our hearts towards him to embrace that as a reality in our lives. But he doesn't just hear his own. He goes on to say that Jesus protects his own. Verses 16 to 18 can seem a little strange. If you look at verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, you know, wait a minute, what's a sin not leading to death? And then he goes on to make it even worse. He says in verse uh, in the end of the verse, there is sin that leads to death. I don't say that you should pray about that. And we're, we're confused again. What, John, what are you saying? And of course, John does not seem to see fit to explain it. He thinks that we just know this well, what's a sin leading to death and what's a sin not leading to death. So again, we have to think about what we know from the rest of the teaching. And, and when we see that the sin that most clearly leads to death, that we see in Jesus' teaching, 
is the sin of rejecting God. And and John's not saying what, what John's not saying. You know, you can't pray about this. You must not that kind of thing. He's really just saying, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about other sins. I'm talking about the sins that Christians commit. He's not really talking about people who are turned on a path completely away from God and rejecting God. It's just not not what he's talking about. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the sins that Christians commit. If anyone sees his brother, his fellow Christian, committing a sin that does not that does not lead to death, and we know this. Sometimes we call them small sins, little sins. But but John has already said multiple times that we all still sin. Everybody sins. He says if you don't if you think you don't sin, you're a liar. He said that straight up earlier in his letter. So that's the kind of sin he's talking about. That Christians. Faithful, believing Christians who want to follow God, and they still commit these sins. And so then we're left to understand this. It helps to think what else could we, what else might we do? Because John gives a command here. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Well, what, what are the other options that we might have? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, that doesn't lead to death. What might we be tempted to do? Well, we could ignore it and say that sin doesn't really matter that much. So I'm just going to ignore it. We could judge them in our hearts and say, man, I am glad I am not like them. Too bad for them. I'm not like them. I'm glad. Well, I'm not those people. Or we could say, it's all up to us. We've got to fix it. We've got to fix every sin. Every time we see a brother committing a sin, we've got to go with and turn them around and let them know. And there are times for some of those, really the only, there's times for the third one, there's not really any time for the first two, but, but there are times that we see in other places in the Bible talk about restoring people gently, but even in some of those places, this scene comes back. What's our first reaction when we see somebody falling into sin? It's to pray. Why? Because it turns off our doctor's eyes. It reminds us that God is the one who protects us. He goes on to say that in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he was born of God, that Jesus protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. If we really believe that, as we say that we do, then it comes out in our actions. It comes out in our response to other people's sin. So you know what? When somebody else is sinning, it's not all on me to fix them. It's on God to fix them. And practically in my life, the way I can do that is by turning to God in prayer. I think that's why John is saying this. He's saying, look, when you see brothers sinning, what they most need is God's protection. And if you believe that, you turn to God and ask him. And so that's the habit that we develop. Instead of the habit of, I gotta fix it, or I gotta judge them, or I gotta just do something. We turn first to God. We turn our hearts to Him in prayer. Why? Because we know that Jesus protects His own. He who was born of God protects Him. And this protection is so powerful. The evil one does not touch Him. And I cannot read this without thinking of Harry Potter. I just can't. I don't know if I've done it here, but I probably have. I, I discuss with my children how often. I use Harry Potter illustrations in sermons. So forgive me if I've overused them. But it's just, it's too perfect. 
in the first Harry Potter book and movie, Harry, the hero, the wizard hero, the child wizard, um, he, he finds himself face to face at the end of the book with the evil Lord Voldemort, who was supposed to be dead and then has come back and is inhabiting this professor who is turned to the evil side. And so Lord Voldemort's in the guy's head, and he's like off the back of his head. It's kind of weird. But in uh, but evil Professor Corell, inhabited by the evil Lord, is trying to get Harry. And Harry, who is an 11-year-old wizard, cannot possibly stop him. A fully adult wizard, powered by an evil dark lord, the greatest dark wizard of all time. There is no way Harry can stop him. And so the professor goes to grab him. And if you've seen it, you know what happens. When the professor goes to grab him, the evil professor goes to grab him, his hand crumbles. Harry's skin scorches him. And the professor, the evil professor, the evil lord, cannot touch Harry because his skin is scorched and burned at the very touch of Harry's skin. Harry doesn't have any idea what's going on, but he's grateful. And so then the evil professor dies from Harry's scorching touch. The, the dark lord is, is sent away for a while again, so he comes back in the next book. Uh, but then the, 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 the key part of it is a few days later, Harry is talking to the good professor Dumbledore, the headmaster of the school, and he says, look, Professor Dumbledore, what? How, why did this happen? I don't understand what happened down there in the dungeon that, that Professor Corell's hands crumbled when they touched me. And Professor Dumbledore says, Harry, that was magic that Voldemort knows nothing about. That was the magic of God. Because when your mother died to save you, to protect you, Harry's mother had died to protect him from the Dark Lord, she put a spell more powerful than any other one. The spell of love that Voldemort cannot touch. And that is the protection that we have. It's a picture there of Jesus' love for us, Jesus' protection of us, that Jesus himself came and he died. He died of, as a perfect sacrifice. As a part, he lived a perfect life, due no punishment, no reason that he should have been killed. But he was killed anyway. And then he rose from the dead. And so Jesus, in his death, in his death and his resurrection, he put a protection on his own. That the evil one cannot overtouch him or ever touch him. And just like Harry in that dungeon, it doesn't always feel that way. We feel the evil one in the world. We feel hardship in our lives. This does not at all mean, do not hear me say that Christians are going to go through life and it's all going to be easy, all sunshine and roses. We see the effects of evil around us in the world. We feel it in our lives. But John promises us here that Jesus protects his own. And ultimately, the evil one cannot touch us. So what does this mean for us? When we are faced with the reality of sin, whether sin in our own lives or sin in the lives of others, our habit must be to turn to God. To turn to God for our own sake and to turn to God for the sake of others. That we take sin seriously. We don't minimize it. We don't say, hey, sin doesn't matter. John has been quite clear that sin does matter. We must turn away from it. We must not keep on sinning. But the solution is not found in ourselves. It's not found in other people. It's found in God alone. In God's protection. And we turn to him and we plead with him and we say, we can take these words and say, God, you said you would protect me. Protect me from this sin. Keep me from temptation. Help me to live rightly before you. 
Help me to love even when it's hard. Help me to forgive even when I don't want to. Help me to turn to you and not turn to my own sins and pleasures. But how can we be sure? How can we be sure that this is true, that Jesus hears his own and that Jesus protects his own? We can be sure because Jesus came for his own. That's what John concludes with right where he started this letter. He started by affirming that Jesus came in the flesh and that John himself heard him and touched him. And then he says in verse 20, in verse 19 and 20, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come, that Jesus came for his own. He came to rescue us because it was not enough to just have words from God, just to have the prophets, just to try to figure things out. That was not enough. Jesus came for his own because that's what we needed. We needed someone to come and rescue us, to come physically in the flesh, to say, here I am, I am God. We are tempted by the tangible things, the idols, the statues that we can look at and say, here's our God, or the food, or whatever it may be in our lives today. We can turn from that and say, no, Jesus came to reveal God himself. Jesus came that we might know God, that we might see him. And that, that we can be confident from everything we know, from the words that are written down, from all of the reasonableness of figuring out how human history works, all of it hinges on Jesus coming in the flesh and him dying and rising again. And when I feel myself doubting, when I wonder, for myself, a lot of times my doubts have to do with this, this planting a new church. Like, what am I doing here? What makes me think I can come here and start a new church? brand new from all people who don't know each other yet. Why are we even doing this? Some of you may wonder those doubts as well. Why am I caring to love this person who is unlovable? Why am I sacrificing my time and money? Why? And when I feel those doubts welling up, I turn back to the fact that I am most sure of, that Jesus really came, that he came in the flesh. He really lived, he really did miracles. He really died, and he really rose from the dead. And there is nothing else. That there, there is no other explanation for the Bible, for the history of the church. There's no other explanation that works other than Jesus really came. And the words of the scriptures are true, and the teaching is true. And then I come back, and I can believe, and I can have confidence, and I can turn back towards God. Why did Jesus come? He came because we needed him. Words, mere words would not be enough. Mere figuring it out would not be enough. I know we were thankfully spared uh, the hurricane this week, but other people were not so fortunate, right? Uh, in North Carolina, South Carolina, you may have heard about the town of New Bern, North Carolina, that was just dramatically flooded by a massive storm surge. And it was under mandatory evacuation orders. Everybody should have left, but there were still people there. And I don't know if you saw the, the tweets or the, the reports of it, but I love what it was a tweet from the city government. And it said, we are coming to get you in all facts. We are, don't worry, we are coming to get you. You may have to go up to the second floor of your house, you may have to go into your attic, we're not sure when, but we are coming to get you. Why? Because that's what people needed. The people who were stuck there, it may have been their own fault. They should have evacuated. It may have been, they may, who knows, I don't know all their stories, but whatever the reason, it didn't matter. 
because the mayor and the other city leaders said, we, we are coming to get you. We are not leaving you. We're going to come get you in boats. We're going to come get you in trucks, whatever it takes. We're going to get you out because you can't get yourself out right now. And it's the same thing for us. And that's the confidence that we can have. Is that Jesus said, I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to get my people. So if you're a believer this morning, if you believe in the name of Jesus, let him be your hope and confidence. Don't let your heart be tempted away by things that are tangible, things that are pleasurable, things that are comforting. Turn towards the solid hope of Jesus, knowing that he came to get you and that he died and rose again, that you would be protected, that he would hear you. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're trying to figure this all out, wondering what it means, know that this is the heart of the Christian message. You don't have to figure everything out. You don't have to figure out every word of the Bible. You don't have to figure out all the details of how it all works. But know that Jesus came for his own. That Jesus is offering that to you. That Jesus wants you to put your trust in him. And all you have to say is, Jesus, rescue me. Help me. I don't understand it all, but I believe that you came. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose again. I want to follow you. Jesus Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus came for his own. And we pray that you would make that truth a reality in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Uh, we, pray. we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.